Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Andrew McAfee. Andrew is the author of a book called The Geek Way. It dropped on the 14th. You can be one of the early purchasers. I think you should be one of the early purchasers. I enjoyed this book a lot. I think that there's, well, you can listen to the beginning. I'll tell you how the beginning of the episode starts. Here's the spoiler. I say, there's a lot of books that I read that I think they could be two-thirds shorter. And that's facts. And you know why? That's because publishers tell people that the book is pretty good, but it needs to be 200 pages or something because they don't want people to spend $40 on a book that feels like you could have printed it off at home. So tons of books are filled with all this filler and you're sitting there and you're reading them and you're saying, why does it feel like I'm wasting my time? Well, here's why. Because you are. Because a publisher needs the book to be a certain length. How do I know this? Because I talk to authors. Now, maybe this is wrong. Maybe this is just one twisted perception of reality, but I am pretty sure it's real. Anyway, long story, somewhat longer, but also short. I was sent by a publicist. All publicists don't start like sending me your stuff. I've seen some things that are not great. But anyway, publicist sent me this. I said, I'm going to give this thing a try, but I'm not going to promise you anything. I picked it up. I started reading. I said, self, I'll be damned if I don't like this book. So I had Andrew on the pod. This is the result. I think you should check it out. It is going right now on Audible for $5.95, discounted from $31.93. I'm sure Amazon will give it to you if you have some sort of Audible membership. You can get the Kindle version for $15. I'm sure you spent $15 on something less useful than this book. I think you're going to get some anecdotes. I think you're going to find out things about Microsoft that are interesting. I think you're going to find out things about Netflix that are interesting. I think you're going to find out things about moving a group in a different direction that you think are interesting. You got psychology. You got business lessons. I don't know. I'm not here to pump a book, but I'm here to pump a book if you dig what I'm saying. Anyway, no financial disclaimers necessary. No sponsor on this one. I'm rolling naked in the sponsorship category. Holler at your boy if you want to. Enjoy the episode. Well, we got Andrew McAfee in the house, right? That's right. There we go. So uh, first of all, we are here to uh, talk about your new book, The Geek Way. And, you know, I, I, I got the book and I thought, ha, ah, The Geek Way, I don't know. Like, what's this going to be? I got to tell you, man, I enjoyed it from, I, I said to somebody, I said, I, I got this book and if I can get 100 pages in and enjoy it, I will recommend it. And I immediately wrote him and I said, I think that you should buy this book. Wow. So, um, you know, I, I, I'd finished the whole thing and I, I was commenting offline. I think that there's a lot of books that I pick up and I read and I say, all right, this thing could have been like 40 pages and I could have gotten it. And I think you did a really, really good job at not making it one of those kind of books. So kudos to you. Thanks. If anything, I think I, I had to work not to go even longer because I, I found myself with more things to say and, and you know more examples I could give. And I had to constrain myself to write a book that wouldn't feel like a doorstop. Yeah. Well, I can understand how you've got a lot of science and a lot of brain science and a lot of evolutionary group uh, thoughts in it. So I can see how you could really get carried away with it. Do you want to... Um, well, you know, we're jumping right into it. You want to level set with the uh, with the audience who you are and kind of what what the catalyst for the book was? Uh, yeah, 
My name is Andy McAfee. I am a scientist at MIT. I study where all this technological progress is taking us. I've written a few books on that topic. And that means that I get to spend a lot of time with technology producing companies. You know, I get to go out to Silicon Valley. I get to talk to the geeks out there. And I, I love that. I also throughout my career have spent a lot of time in the rest of the economy, looking at companies that buy technology and try to make use of it and the companies that got built up over the industrial era. And I think the book came about because I kept on trying to pattern match between those two kinds of company because they were not the same. They, they just, they didn't feel the same. They didn't operate the same. When one of those two groups of companies is kind of was pulling away and taking away, you know, taking over industry after industry and causing a huge amount of disruption and a huge amount of value creation, all of that was happening mainly in that first group of companies. So there was some, some important phenomenon going on where it felt to me like we had upgraded the company, that something was, was big enough, that was different enough, that it, it deserved its own label. And I didn't like any of the labels that were out there. Silicon Valley, that's, it's a very common label, but Amazon's not in Silicon Valley. SpaceX is not in Silicon Valley. We hear about tech okay, you know, by, by what measure is Tesla a tech company? We use that word because they employ a lot of technology, but so does GM, so does Ford, so does VW. So I didn't like any of the labels that we were using to try to say, to try to distinguish this really fascinating special group of companies. And the one that I came up with was, was Geek, because first of all, these companies were generally founded by archetypal geeks. But second of all, that word geek has broadened out beyond just uh, somebody who loves computers. It now describes any any kind of obsessive maverick. And I came to believe that what these companies really have in common was that they were founded and led by people who got obsessed with the hard problem of how do I build a company that accomplishes great things? And then they worked on that problem and they were willing to be unconventional about their solutions. And that work yielded this crop of companies called that I call geek companies and this style of running a company that I call the geek way. I, I reached out to two of my friends that are involved in in sort of a more traditional old world company, and I said, I think you guys should consider this book because the management style that is advocated in the book is broadly applicable. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, pioneers of, of this style or whatever tend to be clustered out west and tend to be tech. I, I kind of wonder whether or not there should be some sort of a a benchmarking within industry of geek type companies, you know, yeah. what do you think about that? Cause you know, like financial services for, for instance, and, and we'll describe what the geek company is, but I, I just kind of have this thought right now, but you know, are, are sort of characterized by more bureaucracy and slower moving and whatnot. So I think it's kind of hard to have like, for lack of a better term, that geeky company in that area. Uh, am I, I mean, I know visa is, but I'm thinking like, traditional banks is there is it possible to to be you know the the geek company in certain industries it absolutely is i hear what you're saying and when you look at the evidence financial services pretty clearly has the most conservative corporate culture of almost any industry however you probably know the company Stripe. Stripe is a pure financial services company. It processes payments primarily for online merchants. It is absolutely a geek company. I had the chance to interview the co-founder, Patrick Collison, interviewed him for the book, and he's just 
deeply insightful guy, but he applies this geek energy in this geek way, which you and I will talk about right in the heart of financial services. And he's in, he and his company are in the process of uh, disrupting the, 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 the payments processing industry. So I don't think that, that this geek way is confined only to some industries. And I think it's going to spread for the really simple reason that it works better. Like you point out, it is inherently less bureaucratic. I think it's actually anti-bureaucratic and it does a good job of avoiding these chronic dysfunctions that drag companies down and can make them really miserable places to work. Yeah, why don't why don't we maybe start there because you have you have a section on bureaucracy and I'm I'm probably going to mess the exact line up, but I I found it like really fascinating where uh, you said something, something to the extent of bureaucracy can thrive, even though it makes like each individual participant miserable within it. Yeah, and and I thought, boy, like that—that's so true, right? So, so maybe what are the companies that are not the geek? Like, what are the companies that are not geeky, and how does bureaucracy sort of um, thrive when it, when the individual participants are not happy? Yeah, so let's unpack that because it's it's deeply counterintuitive, right? You think that if a situation is around and it's stable, it, it's it, it seems durable it must be benefiting somebody. Somebody must like it, some powerful constituency. But if you think about bureaucracy, uh, we, we use it as a negative label because it, when it gets to its extreme form, it is. People don't like working in gigantic bureaucracies. You can't get stuff done. You feel like a cog in this weird anonymous machine. The weirder part to me, the CEO of that company doesn't like it either. She does not want to run a gigantic sclerotic bureaucracy. That, that does not make investors happy. The board of directors doesn't like it. So you start to say, well, wait a minute, how can, how can an unpleasant situation last? How can it be durable? Why don't we just fix it? And the analogy that I use in the book is shopping for toilet paper during the pandemic, which nobody liked doing. Remember, we all got nervous about shortages. So we all started binging and hoarding. And then we all had to keep binging and hoarding because everybody else was doing it. It's just that simple. The stores generally didn't like it. Consumers didn't like it. Specu toilet speculators cropped up. They liked it, but they got shut down. Amazon and other sites said, no, you're not going to do that anymore. But we still had to binge and hoard for a long time, simply for the very simple reason that you did not do better by defecting from that strategy. In other words, if you said, look, I'm, not just, I'm just not going to binge and, binge and hoard toilet paper anymore. You didn't have toilet paper. You couldn't, you couldn't shop any other way. So this is, a, this is a Nash equilibrium. This is one of game theory's most central concepts. You've heard of John Nash from the movie and the book, A Beautiful Mind. His, his, one of his seminal contributions was to explain what we've just talked about, why situations are so durable. And the insight is really, really simple. If you cannot benefit by going rogue, you have a Nash equilibrium. And if everybody faces that same situation. And for me, bureaucracy is this classic, really unpleasant, disheartening Nash equilibrium. What the business geeks are obsessed about, among other things, is having healthier equilibria, having, one that don't, having ones that don't feel so miserable. The huge challenge, and uh, I talk about this a fair amount in the bureaucracy chapter, and the reason bureaucracies crop up 
is because we human beings like status so much. We just want to be involved in, in the loop. We want to have, we want to be a gatekeeper. We want to be consulted. We, we want other people to run their ideas past us. And we want to add something to those ideas. We just have to, this very basic urge, which is common to most social animals, of social mammals, all want to be the top dog. They all want to be the top of the pecking order. So that this drive for status is very human. I don't, I don't think we can train it away. It's very human. It's very deep. And if you channel it properly, it turns into amazing things. If you're not mindful about it, if you're not trying very hard to channel it in only the right directions, it, I think the default is that you wind up with this weird, sprawling, giant, disheartening bureaucracy. Yeah, and I, and I think that something that you touched on is you have uh, potentially have a system and I think arguably likely have a system where the incentives are not to drive towards maybe the best outcome for the business. The incentives are to drive towards the best outcome of how to navigate their bureaucracy and how to navigate uh, your own personal little goal, right? Uh, you talk about what Microsoft was if we were riding the clock to 2010 and how that that company functioned and maybe for those that are looking at 2023 and the most uh, you know, successful company that, that many can think of, maybe, maybe it would be helpful to remind them of where, where uh, Microsoft was before Satya took over. It's almost hard to rewind the clock back that far, right? Because Nadella has, such an, has done such an astonishing job of revitalizing that company. It's hard to remember the first decade of the 21st century at Microsoft. They were going nowhere. They were a gigantic sclerotic bureaucracy. Their stock price, even in nominal terms, even before you infl in, adjust for inflation, their stock price was a flat line for about a decade while the tech industry was growing like crazy. Microsoft was an absolute also ran, and they were just descending into irrelevance because of these dynamics we've just talked about. The the uh, rocket ship of a rising stock price wasn't making everybody well off very quickly. And so they started playing these really elaborate internal status games. And there are these kinds of heartbreaking stories that I include in the book. A really vivid one was a manager who wanted to get a project done. And it was about six weeks worth of work. And he noticed that when he started trying to wrangle everybody for the project, there was a building going that where construction had started right outside his window. Uh, that building was done before the project was over to the point that he pointed out to it in a meeting and said, everybody, that building is done and we're still sitting here talking about this tiny little project. That's just what a sclerotic bureaucracy feels like. Again, they, they are almost the default, I think, as organizations get bigger, as people keep trying to find ways to gain status and to rise up and to be higher in an organization. The way you do that is by scheduling lots of meetings and demonstrating that, that you're central to a lot of different things. It just doesn't help the organization very much. And one of the things that the geeks are obsessive about is trying to avoid that. And they do that by pushing down decision-making to uncomfortable levels. If, you, if you're used to making all the tough calls or having everybody run everything by you, uh, they also really don't believe in process and coordination as much as the companies of the industrial era used to. The, the geeks are willing to tolerate some chaos. There will be redundancy. There will be some chaos. That is an acceptable price to pay for, for not having or, or trying to hold off 
this sclerotic, disheartening bureaucracy. So you got this much more atomized way of running a company. Uh, Benedict Evans is this fantastic technology analyst. I read his stuff all the time. And I include from him a paragraph in the book about Amazon. He said, Amazon is a machine for making more Amazons. And I, I love that imagery. It's this inherently very, very modular, very decentralized place where if you want to fire up some new module, some new thing, you just do it. You don't need to go around asking permission and seeking resources and getting everybody to nod their heads around the table. You can just go do it. That means you can plug in external players, internal players. They've created this modular machine for adding more modules to the machine. I think that's just a, a genius approach. And it, for me, it highlights the, the geek, the great geek norm of ownership. I have uh, taken the liberty of promoting your book on my Twitter feed. And the Benedict Evans quote that I actually tweeted out earlier today, I love this. The obvious advantage of a small team is that you can do things quickly within a team, but the structural advantage of them, in Amazon at least, is that you can multiply them. You can add new product lines without adding new internal structure or direct reports, and you can add them without meetings and projects and process in the logistics and e-commerce platforms. I thought that, that was like a really cool concept. And just think about how rare that is, both, both halves of it. The technological independence. And that was the result of a huge internal effort at Amazon that started in the late 90s and eventually led to Amazon Web Services because what they realized was uh, they, they had such a monolithic technology infrastructure that to get anything new done, you had to go submit requests and get in the queue and justify your existence and all that. And it wasn't working and everybody hated it. And Bezos said, look, we, we have to do something radically different. We have to just let people innovate in this very autonomous, very decentralized way. To do that, we have to reinvent our technology infrastructure while we're still running and growing the company. So that led to this very, very modular um, service-oriented approach toward building a technology stack. And again, that became AWS. Then the other thing was, great, you've decoupled the technology. I don't need to ask permission to access Amazon's technology resources to go try something out there in the market. Now, here's the other thing we have to do. We have to make we have to do the, uh, the other thing that Evan said, which is get out of the business of scheduling a bunch of meetings to get buy-in, to get resources, to get hard and soft approval, to get all the things that you typically need to go launch something new. And when I walk around industrial era companies, the amount of upfront work that has to happen before you can go off and do the thing that you're interested in man, that, that, can, that can take a long, long time. And maybe you need to be really organizationally astute and be able to understand you know, how, the, how the political winds are shifting in order to, to get permission to go try something. The geeks love this phrase, permissionless innovation. Go try stuff. When uh, you have encountered people, my, my background is from a commercial bank and commercial banking is very hierarchical, at least in my ex experience. Um, I think there is some some good reason. And I think some of it has gone way too far. Um, but what's the best when I was reading about the, the sort of decision-making closer to the frontline person is how I'm kind of thinking about it. Is there a level of materiality that the geeks tend to lean into or do they, um, you know, say we're, we're going to push it, push delegation to an uncomfortable level, even for us, and if things go wrong, you know, we'll protect against maybe catastrophic decisions or, or something that could be material, but um, everything else we're just going to kind of push down. Is that, I mean, how have you, how have you seen this implemented? That's very close to what, to what I've seen. And 
I, I spend some time in the chapter on bureaucracy talking about this sea change that Amazon made relatively early in its history, because I didn't realize this. This came out of a great book called Working Backward, written by a couple of former Amazonians. And they said that as the 21st century was dawning, Amazon was already growing like a weed, but they were in danger of becoming one of these massive sclerotic bureaucracies, because it turns out you had to seek a lot of permission to innovate. They had a uh, innovation process called uh, the NPI process, New Proposed Innovation Process, I think. And you submitted your idea. I want to try something. You submitted it to this bureaucracy and it would go up a couple layers and whatnot. And you would get one of three emails back. One of them was, hey, congrats. And you had to specify what you needed from the rest of Amazon to go try, to go try the thing you wanted. And you get one of three emails back. The first one was, hey, congrats, your, your idea is approved. The teams that you need resources from have been alerted. They'll be in touch with you to give you what you need. That was the first one. The second one was, hey, sorry, none of your ideas got approved. The good news is you actually don't have to supply resources to anybody else either. The third email was, hey, sorry, none of your ideas got approved. And in addition, you also, in addition to being responsible for all the goals that, that we've agreed on, none of that's gone away, but you also now have to provide resources and assistance <laughs> yeah. as part of the organization. Thanks, thanks for raising your hand. Yeah. Now you're shorthanded. Way over, way over here, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that yeah. second email highlights a, a really deep fact about bureaucracies about, and, and about a lot of companies. It's good news when they leave you alone. No news is really good news. The bad news is they very often don't leave you alone. And so the Amazonians were talking about the NPI process, not, not in really healthy terms at all. And it was kind of a, um, it was just this bummer. And Bezos and the leadership of Amazon realized they were gumming the company up. It was the opposite of what they wanted. And I give them amazing credit for just about pivoting 180 degrees away from their prior preferred approach for running a company. And they're like, we got it. We have to get out of this business. Steve Yeg is a former engineer at Amazon, and he's a very lively writer. And he wrote this long blog post about that experience. And he said, you have to understand, Jeff Bezos makes an ordinary control freak look like a stoned hippie. This guy likes being in control. But what he realized and, and what Amazon eventually did was say, look, if, the, if, we can, if we really want to accomplish the goals that we've set up as a company, we can't be control freaks in this way anymore. We just have to get out of the way and let the innovation happen. I'll tell you what's interesting is, is uh, you know, I follow media and I, I watch how certain CEOs can't let go. And then I watch my perception of how Jeff Bezos kind of has for the time being. I'm sure he's still very involved. I mean, I, but he seems to be living his life and truly outsourcing uh, the decision making. Whether or not my perception's true, uh, we'll see over time. But... Um, it makes sense after hearing you say that, yeah. right? He, he almost had to learn how to delegate. So this is the next, next natural step, right? Just enjoy life for a bit and he'll figure out what he wants to do. Yeah. And I love that. I think it's a, it's a particular aspect of the geek mindset, which is in order to solve this problem that I'm obsessed with, I might have to walk away from my own first solutions, my own prior beliefs, my own preferences. I might have to learn how not to be a control freak if I want actual innovation to happen at this company that I've started. I've, ob I've observed that over and over. I talk to a lot of geeks who I respect, and that comes through fairly consistently. I, I talked to Sebastian Thrun, who's this alpha uh, geek 
computer scientist, AI guy, and a pretty good business person, entrepreneur too. And he's got a great quote. I put it in the book where he said, look, a, a team down in the organization that's, that's responsible for getting something interesting done, they, they write it up and then they start putting it up the flagpole. And he said, at every layer of the flagpole, people add something to it. They want to add their two cents. So they want to make sure that everyone knows that they contributed to it. And he said, by the time it gets back down to the original team, it's almost unrecognizable. And that's a very hard problem to fix as long as you're in the, hey, let's run it by everybody mode of conducting affairs. If you get out of that mode, then you stand a chance of all that gumming up not happening. It's uncomfortable. It does bring risks with it. it it's, it's, not, it's not all upside all the time. But I, compared to creating one of these gigantic bureaucracies. I have a quote from Balzac, the great 19th century French novelist in the book. He said, uh, bureaucracy is a giant machinery operated by dwarves. I love that. Like, don't, don't build that machinery. If you're still with us and wondering what the Geekway uh, principles are, the four of them are speed, ownership, science, and openness, and we will go into all of them. But I, I think why I'm dropping that now is what you just said about you know, feedback coming back down teams, what I experienced, and I'm certain my work product was not perfect. But by the time that everybody had had a, a an opinion that had to be on the paper or whatever, you know, in a, in a memo or whatever, I almost felt like I don't even own this thing and I don't even know how they want me to say it. It, <laughs> right. it almost like, like it became like a, how am I saying what they want me to say? And then they were mad that I wasn't saying something right. away. And it's like, what the hell are we doing here? Like, we spent a week talking about how we're going to say something and we're all getting to the same place anyway. It makes no sense. Right. And I'm more confused now than I was a week ago. It's, it's this very common result. And, and this radical approach of, of atomizing, decentralizing, pushing things down and not just saying that people are your most important resource. If you believe that, get uncomfortable, delegate down that far. Now, there are exceptions, right? You, you, don't, um, you have to monitor people so they don't break the law. And in the case of banking, so they, you know, they, they don't violate all these regulations against insider trading and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't monitor people's expense reports, you might find that the number of meals and business class trips start going up. It, it's, not, it, it's not the same as saying, and just blindly trust all your people. No, don't do that, right? So let's talk about that meals because that was an example in the book. So, so when you encounter that, how do you, how do you keep the um culture of of delegation and and make an example without necessarily making an example of the person and this is something reed hastings talks a lot about ceo founder of netflix in a lot of his talks and in his book no rules rules which he wrote with aaron meyer it's a really good book because uh, because hastings is very honest about a few things and he says we have the debate inside netflix all the time about do we need more formal travel policies? Because the travel policy, at least for a long time at Netflix, when it came to fancy meals or business class flights or whatever, was act in Netflix's best interests. In other words, if you're going to if you're going to take an overnight flight and you got to go to a meeting the next morning at eight o'clock, maybe you should get some sleep on that flight. Okay, we can see a business class uh, ticket in that case. Hey, if you're going to get in late afternoon and you know go swim in the hotel pool and then you have meetings the next day, maybe you should fly in the back of the plane. So it's just a judgment-based rule with some explanation around it. However, there's there are constant conversations, according to Hastings, about do we need more formal policies because people keep pushing, obviously, in the direction of a few more business class flights 
and they're expensive for a company. So it's not trivial. In addition to which, even with the auditing that you put in place, if you're smart, uh, Hastings said, we found out that one of our employees had expensed about $100,000 of, uh, of luxury vacations to Netflix. Now, of course, they fired the person immediately. But then what they didn't do was say, as a result of that one incident, that one really bad actor, everybody now has to go through this, this like, you know, uh, disheartening approval process for every nickel you want to spend. They did not change it. You bring up another case where an employee expensed meals that were inappropriate and they got rid of them. And what they did afterward is something really, really clever and important. I, I, I center the geek way around these four norms that you mentioned, science, ownership, speed, and openness, which we'll talk about. We've talked a bit about ownership so far. One of the things you have to do with norms is keep repeating them so that everybody is clear on what they are. We humans are built in norm followers, but we have to be, they have to be very, very clear to us. So in the wake of this expense account thing, uh, Netflix managers went to their teams and and, and, in open meetings, they were very careful to say, this is a thing that happened, uh, left it anonymous. They said, the consequences are serious. This person got fired. Everybody, you have to not do things like that. Reinforce the norm. Norms, if you get them and they can be self-perpetuating, they have a flywheel. One of the things you have to do is make them very clear to people all the time. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna geek out and deviate a little, but it's still in the book. So, so I don't think I'm deviating too much, but it's about norms and how people behave. Uh, do you mind telling the story about this, uh, I'm going to maybe mess up how you say it, the seminarians and, <laughs> yeah, no, that's and, exactly right. and like culturally how like, like that's such an interesting story of what you might not think that culture of person would do, but then in reality without norms, uh, reminding them or enforced what the outcome is. And I bring up the Princeton Seminary experiment to highlight the difference between focusing on individual level interventions. You know, you got to go through training, you got to go through ethics training. Uh, you need to go sharpen your reasoning abilities. You need to go work on uh, um, your, your personal leadership style. We do a lot of that. We focus on the individual a lot, and there's a time and a place for that. However, I think it is generally a much better idea and a much more effective intervention to focus on the group. And norms are really important parts of groups. The reason I say that is because we have all this evidence that uh, when, when the norms change or when an individual mindset comes into conflict with, comes into contact with a norm, the norm wins. And you bring up the Princeton Seminary Experiment, which is this landmark experiment that was undertaken in 1970, where the, the, these experimenters, and in general, one of my conclusions from writing the book is that experimental psychologists are um, fiendishly brilliant people. They, 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 I think they have kind of a sadistic streak or an evil streak because they find ways to manipulate <laughs> this people. This certainly seemed like a bit of an evil it's, uh, they're, experiment. They're brilliant and not <laughs> nice. So what these, what these two um, psychologists did is they recruited a bunch of seminarians from the Princeton Theological Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. They recruited them to participate in an experiment. They said, look, you're going to become part of an experiment. And that what they were interested in was what kinds of people are more altruistic? What makes a person altruistic? Is it their personality? So they gave everybody a personality test. 
Or is it their mindset? Is it what they're thinking about in the moment? So they had half of the students um, prepare to give a talk about careers in the seminary. They had the other half of the students prepare a talk about uh, the print uh, the Je- about Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, which is this incredibly famous story about a man who gets beaten by robbers and left on the side of the road, and a Jewish priest walks by, and a Levi, a, a, a Jew- another Jewish um, fun- a religious functionary, walks right by the guy, and then a Samaritan walks by, and the Samaritans and the Jews were historical enemies, but the Samaritan is the guy that aids the person who's been beaten up by the robbers. So Christ would tell this story to his Jewish followers, and the message was incredibly clear. It's not following the right religion that that makes you a good person. It's helping somebody else. And Christ ends the parable of the Good Samaritan by saying, go and do likewise, right? It could not be more clear. So the experimenters had half of the people thinking about that, and they knew they were thinking about that because of the way they set up the experiment. Now, here's where it gets really fiendish. Every one of the seminarians took a route across campus to go to the room where they were going to deliver their talk. They took the same route, and that route took them down kind of a narrow, dark alleyway, and there was a person in the alley. And in every situation you read about like this, the person is part of the experiment. They're called a confederate. And in this case, the confederate was slumped over in some doorway, clearly not in a great place. And as each seminarian approached, the person would cough and kind of moan and was clearly in some kind of distress. So the setup of the experiment was very, very clear. And the the goal was to see who would actually intervene, who would actually help out this person. In other words, were people who had more more of an inherently religious mindset more likely? The answer is no. Were the people who who had prepared a talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan more likely? No, they actually weren't. That mindset did not increase the amount of helping behavior out there. The only thing that did change, meaningfully change the number of people who helped this person who looked like they needed help was how much of a hurry they were in. Because the experimenters did one last fiendish thing. For one third of the seminarians, they said, oh, you got plenty of time, take your time. For another third, they said, oh, oh well, you know, we, you, you better go over, they're, they're, they're waiting for you. And for the last third, they said, oh, you're late. Uh, you, you'd better, you better hurry, uh, they've been waiting for you for a while. That was it. Of the people who were told that they were late, no matter what else was going on, only 10% offered help to the slumped over person. If they were told you're not late, but you're also not early, it was on the order of 40%, I believe. And the only group where a majority of people who were at a seminary, their, their goal is to spread Christ's teachings about helpfulness and love and altruism and all that. The only case where a majority of them would help the person were when they weren't in any hurry. And it's just a, it's a striking experiment. The way I interpret it is that mindset matters a lot less than we think it does in, in lots of cases. But if you're a Presbyterian seminary student in 1970, you have a strong norm of punctuality. Being late is not cool. That's a norm. It's a thing that people expect of you. And so when there was a norm violation, I'm late, versus a mindset, I'm supposed to be thinking about the Good Samaritan, man, bet on the norm. Bet on the norm. So that tells me that what we need to work really hard on 
is having environments with healthy norms as opposed to unhealthy ones. I kind of agree with Jonathan Haidt, this fantastic psychologist who I've learned a lot from. He has a quote that I put in the book and he said, nobody is going to invent an ethics course that makes you behave eth ethically the moment you step out of the classroom. I think that's just about right. But if you have norms where ethical behavior is expected, where it's observable, where you can tell who's doing it and who's not, that, that's, that's a great way to actually have an ethical environment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that story because it's uh, the juxtaposition of the outcome is so, um, you know, as, as you said, these are smart and diabolical individuals that uh, created the the experiment. And I think they got their point across very well. Yeah. Yeah. They're, and I, I bring up a bunch of different kinds of experiments in the book because they test out these theories, right? We have all these ideas about what makes people tick and how they're going to behave. Great. You know, go run an experiment. Let, let's let's look at it. That's a great uh, segue to the Geekway, right? Uh, a, a component of the Geekway is A-B testing and data. So, you know, with um, you want to touch on speed because I'm not sure that we've touched on speed. And I think that, um, you know, testing, but also testing quickly are maybe different things. And maybe you could riff on that a little bit and some of the companies that you use as examples. So I bring up A-B testing in the chapter on science, which is the first of the chapters devoted to the great geek norms, because an A-B test is pretty clearly an experiment, and an experiment is pretty clearly a thing that we do within the scientific method. But uh, like you know, people will argue endlessly about what the scientific method actually is. If you just if you want to start a debate among overeducated people, just say, hey, you know, what, what is the scientific method? And, you know, just wait. They're just going to go at it forever and ever. I... I came across a book as I was researching the geek way that I thought nailed this question. It's this, it's this wonderful book called The Knowledge Machine by a philosopher named Michael Strevens, who nailed for me the question of what the scientific method is. And he boiled it all down. He gave plenty of examples and he convinced me that um, science is a, uh, it's a norm. And in particular, it is a norm about how you're going to conduct an argument. Because science is all about arguments. I have hypothesis A, you have hypothesis B. I think you, the universe, nature works this way. You disagree. How are we going to settle this? And for most of human history, we settled it by thinking about what God would have said. Or we settled it by doing what the king said was the right answer. Or somebody had a great deal of charisma. Or they were the head tribes person in the village. We had all these ways to settle these kinds of disputes about what's going on here. And then we came up with this brilliant thing called science, which is here's how we're going to settle it. We're going to conduct an experiment. We're going to run an analysis. We're going to do a test. And in particular, you and I, even though we disagree, we're going to agree on the test that will tell which one of us is right. And then we're going to go run that test. Then we're going to get evidence-based about it. And that science is an argument with a ground rule for how you figure out who wins the argument. Man, that's great. And that, that applies directly to the business world. We got to figure out what to do. We all have different ideas about how the market's going to involve, evolve, what the, uh, what, what the forecast should be. Will this product succeed or not? Great. We can just sit around and argue our viewpoints all day long. What we should be doing is testing our ideas as, as often and as uh, correctly as possible. Now, let me give you an example of how that goes badly off course. I bring up New Coke, which a lot of your viewers and your listeners are probably too young to remember, but in the uh, a lot, a lot study Buffett. So Buffett's Buffett's ranted and raved about new Coke enough that I think we all may know. It's so fantastic, but you don't have firsthand experience with it. Do you? 
I was just, uh, I was probably seven or yeah, so. Yeah, so I was in college, uh, and I've just aged myself. I was in college As when Coke came out and said, we just changed the formula for Coke. They announced it at a New York City press conference, I believe in 1985, and they said, Coke, the old Coke is gone, here comes the new Coke. And like you can imagine, the world went, wait, what? Because Coke had been around for pretty close to a century by that point. It did, in fact, at one point include cocaine, but not for a long, long time. But Coke was part of America. And so the world said, what on earth are you doing and why would you do it? Do that? It turns out that the Coke leadership team had done what they thought was the scientific method. You remember the Pepsi challenge where they had people just, you know, at a, at a park or something and they offered them side-by-side -side sips of cola. They didn't tell them which was which. And a majority of people preferred the Pepsi. This was amazing advertising for Pepsi. But Coke said, oh, that's not good. They did internal versions of the Pepsi challenge that showed the same thing, that showed that their beverage was not the one preferred by the majority of people. And they're like, this is really not good. We're losing the cola wars. We got to switch up the formula. What they didn't do, and it was correct that, that a small majority of people preferred Pepsi. That experiment revealed that. What they didn't do, and this is the crucial part of the norm of science, is then present that finding to a bunch of their peers and argue about it. Because if they had, they did this largely in secret. This was a weird kind of a, a top level, fairly secret project that led to changing the formula for Coke. What they should have done is convened a much bigger group and said, everybody here, here are the results of our experiment. We're thinking about changing the formula for Coke. They immediately, the room would have told them two things. First of all, people don't buy Coke for how it tastes. They, they, they just don't. We're buying the same because it makes us feel a certain way. We've built up this legendary brand, right? We're Coca-Cola because we're so closely associated with this aspect of Americana and people are thinking they're drinking this thing that's been continuous for a century. It's part of their lives. Their grandfather drank the same thing. And you're going to mess with it? Did you A-B test mess with part of Americana versus don't mess with that? The second thing was that when you're drinking a whole glass as opposed to just the sip, the sweetness of Pepsi becomes cloying to a lot of people. So in a full glass, Coke probably would have won the Pepsi challenge. That's not the important part. Oh, that's interesting. The important part was you're, you're messing with Americana. And if you A-B test with a bunch of Americans, mess with a cherished part of America versus don't mess with it, the answer to that is actually really, really clear. So the leadership team of Coke just blew that so deeply. The mistake didn't last that long because it was so unpopular. But you can think if you conduct an A-B test, you're doing science. That, that's, the, that's the less important part of it. The much bigger part is argue, get together with your peers, get together with people you respect, and hash out how you're going to determine which of us is right. What evidence are we going to gather? So, you know, I mean, I think one of the one of the themes that runs through the book is, as you just said, argument, how do, how do organizations, you know, I think a Starbucks or um, I mean, even Disney right now, like you, you've got these iconic leaders that, um, you know, how do you how do you avoid hero worship or does the or does the CEO have to actively uh, uh like push down the idea of hero worship because the, these CEOs are bigger than life to many. That, that's exactly right. And I think the CEOs and the whole organization has to work pretty hard to get out of that hero worship business. It's very difficult for two reasons. The first one is that all of us are fond of our own opinions. We love our ideas. This is why you have to, this is why the interpersonal part of science, the group part is so important. It turns out that I think what evolution has done 
is separate generating ideas from evaluating ideas. Generating ideas is an individual level process by and large. Evaluating ideas is a group level process. It turns out that we are weirdly good, so, so good that I think evolution had a hand in it at immediately picking up the flaws or the things that somebody else overlooked in their argument. We are great evaluators of other people's arguments. We're terrible evaluators of our own argument, of our own ideas and arguments. We love them way, way, way too much. So you, you can't, you can't rely on leaders, even, even very enlightened ones, even very, very good ones to accurately evaluate their own opinions and ideas and whatnot. It's just, it's an unreasonable thing to expect, even if you're an incredibly successful CEO. Um, the other thing is that if, and when you are an incredibly successful CEO, or even if you're just the CEO, people don't want to argue with you. We, we, we humans are, as I said, we're extraordinarily status conscious as a species. And for most social animals, the way you get to the top of the status hierarchy is by being physically formidable, is by being dominant, which means arguing with the, with the top dog or the, 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 the one at the top. Man, that's a good way to get beaten to a pulp. It, throughout our evolutionary history, that's kind of been true. And so we really don't like to argue up the, up the org chart. It's just not a thing that's comfortable to us. So for those two reasons, what I think the geeks do, and they work really hard at it, is trying hard to create an environment where it's not just maybe tolerated, but it's okay or it's even expected that you're going to argue up when you think the evidence merits it. Uh, you remember, I, I, do you remember Quickster, the, the, Nets, the Netflix fiasco? This was Reed Hastings' idea. When he was spinning up streaming, and at that time in 2011, Netflix was still largely a DVD by mail company back in, back in those days. But Hastings knew that streaming was the future. And he all of a sudden, kind of one day, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to split this company into two. There's one called Quickster that's responsible for the legacy DVD mailing business. There's a new one called Netflix, and where Netflix is going to be all about streaming. And he said, we're going to split. And what that immediately meant was that I and all the other Netflix subscribers out there were going to have to manage two queues, pay, have two different logins and passwords, pay more, pay about 60% more. This was a terrible idea. And as soon as Hastings announced it, the stock price tanked, the market cap of the company declined by about 75%. It got parodied on Saturday Night Live. It was such a bad idea. And when they finally unwound it, Hastings kind of looked around and said, wait a minute, what, why didn't you guys argue with me? This is a terrible idea. And everybody kind of said, yeah, yeah Reed, we, we knew that. Uh, but you were so convinced, you're so passionate, you've been right about so many things that we all kind of you know, looked around and said, well, if he believes it, it must be right. I must be the dumb one. I'm not going to argue with him. And Hastings at that point said, okay, everything we've done up until now to build a culture of dissent and productive disagreement hasn't been enough, obviously. So we put in place a policy, and Netflix is not a policy-heavy company called Farming for Dissent. And it goes such that if you have a, a, a biggish idea, you are obligated to write it up and give it to a bunch of your peers. And their job is not to say, you know, fantastic, Andy. Their job is to tell you what they like and what they don't like about it. So it's peer review inside a company. He did a couple other things that were a little bit less formal than that, but he kept working to make Netflix a place where people would feel very comfortable and like it was part of their job to argue upward. And he eventually succeeded with that. And he describes in the book how he was wrong about kids programming. He thought it was not that big a deal. His colleagues said, uh, Reed, our, our kids are the main Netflix consumers in our house. And they're very, very picky consumers. 
So Netflix became a leader in kids programming, and he was wrong about the download feature on the app. He thought that as bandwidth you know, spread throughout the economy, we were going to get it on planes and Teslas and everywhere else, that you did, Netflix would not need to build downloading into the app. A, a fairly junior person went off and did interviews around the world, and he came back and he said, downloading is universally popular. So Hastings said, I was wrong. And they built downloading into the app. I use it all the time. So Netflix became a place where the company could get it right even when the boss, even when the charismatic visionary founder at the top got it wrong. That's really hard to do. I think it's really important. We've seen plenty of recent examples, I think, of legendarily successful CEOs, leaders, founders making pretty bad bets. It can happen. Yeah, I, I am reminded of two examples that you talk about the book, one of which is the AOL Instant Messenger junior person that said, like, look, we're, we're going the wrong way here. And the senior person sort of shut him down or her down and and AOL went uh, the way of the dodo bird, right, basically, or, or AIM did, certainly, right? And, and that's sort of a similar, I think, had had that leader been open to what that junior person was saying and how younger people were adopting AIM. I mean, that, that used to be, I used to live on AIM. Sure. And, and it's no longer a thing. It's very, very common for us to believe that we're in possession of all the facts that we need to evaluate somebody else's idea and that the world has not changed. We have kind of a status quo bias. So when somebody comes along and says, you know, you know what's important about this new thing called messaging is that the note I can leave to tell people where I am. And the boss just said, wait, no, that's not what we intend the product for. I intend it so I can just shoot you a quick message. And this was actually inside Microsoft. And the younger programmer said, no, all my friends are using this thing called AIM. And the reason we use it is because we, we learn about each other every time we glance at the screen. And the boss said, well, what could that ever turn into? Who would ever be posting updates about themselves for the world to see? I mean, they just miss this stuff. There are tons of examples throughout the book. And I'm trying to drive home the point that we humans, we are a chronically overconfident species. You are, I am. I was writing a book that was where I featured overconfidence very, very prominently. And I confidently told my publisher when the manuscript would be, would be available. And I was wrong. Right? We, we, we just, we keep doing this. Danny Kahneman was super overconfident. He's got a Nobel Prize for pointing out how chronic overconfidence is. We we have to get we have to stop relying on the on the judgment and and the wisdom and the 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 brilliance of, of leaders. They they make mistakes too. We have to be able to correct them. I have written, I love this line. Relying on expert judgment, for example, made more sense when digital data was scarce and computers weren't available to run algorithms, but some, some bad ideas have simply always been bad and deferring to experts without allowing others to stress test their ideas is just a lousy idea. Just a lousy idea. I, yeah, I, I thought, um, you know, I thought that that's, that I just thought that was very insightful. Yeah, thank you. And it's one of the striking things that I noticed, one of the biggest differences I noticed between geek companies and industrial era incumbents is the argumentativeness of the culture. And I don't and the to be clear, the geeks can take it too far and they can be jerks and they can turn argumentation into abuse and they can alienate people. They've done all of those things. I talk about Linus Torvalds running Linux and how abusive his leadership style was. It drove really good people out and he eventually had to step down because he was just uh, poisoning this thing that that he created. He eventually acknowledged it. So we have to be careful about argumentation. We have to 
we have to make sure that we're maintaining psychological safety, which is a concept that my colleague Amy Edmondson has talked a great deal about. Her new book is called The Right Kind of Wrong. It's all about this of this psychological safety, it being okay to fail, it not being career limiting. Your boss is not going to come down on you if you talk back to them. It's it's hard to do. You have to keep working at it. It's a norm. Yeah, and I and I think that 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 has to be fostered within the culture, right? That that's like I I love your um. What's your concept of? as a species, we're able to evolve. And so you're the, the example you use is how to make fire and how important fire is. And we've sort of passed along that we need fire, but none of us individually really knows how to rub two rocks together and make fire. And I think that the, um, the evolution of an organization to one that embraces sort of being wrong and doesn't, doesn't fault people and doesn't, um, you know, you, you talk about stack ranking, right? And I can't help but think about these two things. If I'm getting stank, stack ranked every six months, I maybe not, I don't want to take the risk of being wrong, especially if it's something that's large, right? And I think that, I think that kind of thing permeates your book and uh, you're advocating for organizations that get out of that way of thinking. And like you you can tell, and I hope your your viewers can tell very quickly, I'm, I'm obsessed with norms, and I became obsessed as I was working on this book. I'm obsessed with, with group-level behaviors as opposed to individual-level behaviors, because I think in my community, people who study business and try to figure out how to make them work better, we have seriously over-focused on the individual. We have under-focused on group-level interventions, and the group level is where the magic, the good, the good or the bad, but the magic can really happen. In fact, I think, as a, I think we we're missing what makes human beings such a weird, unique species. I think we're actually getting it very, very wrong. And you alluded to it a little bit. If you just think about the Latin name for our species, Homo sapiens, the sapiens part means wise. We think that what distinguishes us from everything else on the planet is our, is our, you know, our big old brains, our IQ. And to be honest, there's a lot of truth to that, right? We figured out calculus. Uh, we, we have better reasoning about causality and space and time and quantities than uh, chimpanzees and orangutans do, even when we're toddlers. And of course, our abilities get better. We are smart. However, I don't think that's where the, the, the difference really happens. And one reason I, I'm a little skeptical of this we're so smart argument is we are not smart enough to stay alive. We're literally not. So in the book, like you saw, I include this kind of discomforting thought experiment. I said, okay, take a group of, of human toddlers after they're weaned from their mother's milk and put them in the most hospitable environment you can imagine. There are no diseases. There are no predators. Uh, you've got plenty of warm shelter. You've got ideal temperatures. I don't know, maybe it's San Diego weather or something. And they've got all the fresh, raw, unspoiled food that they can think of. Anything a human being might want to eat. Fresh water. They've got all the food in the world. The only things they don't have are older human beings and fire, right? So they live in this paradise otherwise. What's the result of that thought experiment? I, I'm, I'm sorry. For most species, the result would be overpopulation. For the humans, I, the, um, as far as I can tell, those kids would starve because we human beings cannot survive for a, very, for a long time on a diet of raw, unprocessed food. Lenny Kravitz is what we should all aspire to is Lenny Kravitz's energy and physique 
in his mid-50s. He's primarily raw vegan, but his diet requires a huge amount of blenders and preparation to get the food nutrient-dense enough so that it can sustain him. We human beings cannot survive on the diet that nature provides for us unless, some, unless we process food or cook it. Cook it is the primary way. And we are not smart enough to figure out how to create fire and cook food on our own. We just can't do it. It's really, really hard to start a fire. We live in a world of you know, Zippos and matches and things like that. But if you go out and you have to try to learn on your own to start a fire, you're very, very likely not going to succeed. So what happens instead is that human groups figured out a way to make fire, then they preserved that fire and they taught that method to their kids and the later generations who got better at it. The knowledge about how to create and maintain fire is not at the level of the individual, it's at the level of the group. At the individual level, we die. At the group level, we go from striking stones together to launching spaceships. That's why my deep conviction is we, we just, we always have to have the group as the default thing that we think about. And I think that, you know, uh, a good example to go back to it of a corporation and a manager that acknowledged if I change the group is Microsoft. And I was, I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the frozen middle and unlocking uh, the potential of them. Yeah. And, and I had the chance to interview Satya Nadella for the book. and It was fantastic. He's just such a deeply insightful person. And we're eventually going to give him and Microsoft credit for the turnaround. I think we're still lowballing how big a deal that was from how moribund and lifeless Microsoft was to, the, to where it is today. That, that is an amazing corporate turnaround story. So I obviously asked Nadella how he did it. And a thing that he stressed was uh, that you don't do it by firing everybody and bringing in all new people. That's not what he did at Microsoft, right? The, the employee base is largely the same. And it gets to this point that if you want to deeply change an organization, large scale personnel changes probably aren't going to work even. New people are just going to absorb the norms that they see when they get there. You've got to work. You can do it with the same bodies, but you've got to work on changing the norms. And in particular, uh, Nadella did a couple of very brilliant things. One was for the, he put in place the, the a norm of ownership by saying to everybody inside Microsoft, which was full of fiefdoms and political turf battles and whatnot, he said, you cannot control access to a resource like code or data. If somebody else wants to grab that resource, you know, they can't mess it up and we can't do illegal things with it. But if somebody wants to grab that resource and innovate with it or do something, they have that permission. You do not have the right to stop them from doing that. So for example, when they wanted to create GitHub Copilot and they wanted to use all the code inside GitHub, they didn't have to go around and beg for permission or go through a long process. That was a right that they had. So by taking away the blockers and the ability to say no, then you unlock a whole lot of ownership and value creation at Microsoft. But he, he did um, something else that I thought was just so smart. He tried to instill a norm of openness in a company that was famously kind of defensive and pretty bureaucratic and everybody had to win, win, win all the time. And for me, the norm of openness is not that. It's not being defensive. It's being uh, receptive to the idea that you're wrong, that your idea is not good, that you need to pivot. So openness for me is just about exactly the opposite of defensiveness. And Nadella talks in his book, A Hit Reset, and he talked with me about how he accomplished that. One thing stands out to me. 
he brought together his absolute senior leadership team and he had a, he was kind of a diabolically clever guy himself. He brought an organizational psychologist in. And so they're sitting there on the senior leadership team and the psychologist says, okay, who here, who here wants to have an amazing personal experience? And of course, these are all, you know, amazing, they're ambitious, top level Microsoft people. They're all like, yeah, that sounds great. He goes, okay, I need a volunteer. I need somebody to stand up. Crickets, right? Dead silence. Took a long, long time. Finally, one brave uh, person stood up and was going to go through whatever it was. And then the psychologist said, think about this. You, you're, you've all just said you want to have an incredible experience, yet none of you was willing to be open or vulnerable enough to stand up and actually do it. What's, what's going on here? And then it led to this kind of, this, this really kind of uh, deep revelatory session where people talked about why they felt so defensive even being very senior, having this great career at, at one of the iconic American companies, why were they so defensive? And it's got, it didn't change things overnight, but it got Microsoft and the senior people at Microsoft to start thinking at least about being a little more vulnerable. And I used to hate that word. I used to think the place where you go to work is not your group therapy session. Your job when you get in, into work is not to sit around and be vulnerable and talk about all the things that aren't working and how many, how much therapy. No, that, I, I was wrong. What, what vulnerability I think means and what it demonstrates is I'm not, I'm not a defensive person. I'm not a defensive leader. Late leader. I'm not going to cling to my prior ideas or my head count or, or all the stuff that I have right now. I'm, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be willing to open that up. I might let you see something that I didn't do very well. I might, I might acknowledge ignorance or a weakness. Man, that, that's incredibly powerful because especially when the senior people do that, we all as human beings instinctively mimic senior prestigious people. Those behaviors start to spread and you have the chance of building an organization where the DNA, where the norms are not so inherently defensive. I interviewed Yamini Rangan, who's the CEO of HubSpot. And she, is, she also did this brilliant job of, of demonstrating, of modeling this kind of leadership style, this much more vulnerable style. One thing she did, for example, was share her performance review from the board with her senior team. And she didn't, she didn't say anything explicit about that. But you can imagine that a lot of the people in that meeting then shared their report with their teams. It's just this very, very clear example of vulnerability. You know, the board didn't, I, I don't think the board gave her straight A pluses. They said, Yamini, there are some things that we think you need to work on. Great, share that with your team. Let, let them propagate that. Then you have a chance of building a company where people aren't walking around like, I, I can't ever lose, I can't ever be wrong, which was uh, apparently the case at Microsoft before Nadella took over. So we, we can change these cultures. We can change companies and we can change them without firing 60% of the people. Uh, that, that's, that's brutal and it probably doesn't even work. You change it by starting to model and put in place different norms. Yeah, well, and to your point, if you don't change the norms, you can fire 60% of the people, you hire the 60% back and the new group just kind of falls right into the old pattern, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to look around, they're going to realize how the game is played here and they're going to start behaving like the 60% that just got fired. Yeah, what's the concept? Is it ultra social? What do you what do you refer to? Uh, yeah, what what does ultra social mean? And and I think that that I think that's uh, it's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to this notion that that we humans we are smart, but absolutely, but we're so dumb we can't even stay alive without a group. Okay, that tells me 
that maybe the sapiens thing isn't the best word for our species. So I made up a Latin word. I made up the word homo, uh, the ultrasocialis part of homo ultrasocialis. So I'm Latinizing in a very amateurish way, this adjective that people do use to talk about us. Uh, people who study living things say that we are the planet's only ultra-social species. There are plenty of social species. Chickens are social. Elephant seals, chimpanzees, these are all very social species. Wolves are very social. Um, there are even some, uh, I forget what the exact the adjective is, but there are very large groups of, of um, individuals that work closely together. Ants, bees, social wasps, and termites. These are, so, these are social insects, and they cooperate more intensely than any other um, non-human species on the planet. Here's the interesting thing. They're all genetically related. They're literally all members of one big family. We human beings, we are the only species on the planet that cooperates intensely, divides up, subdivides labor, does, you know, does division of labor with large numbers of people who we are not related to. Wow, that's interesting. We are the plant, the label is ultra social. We are the planet's only ultra social species. As far as we can tell, we're the only ultra social species that has ever existed on the planet. Okay, that, that start, then I start to get leverage here. Then I start to think, okay, so what the job of a leader in this group of unrelated individuals called a company, the job of a leader is to harness and shape our ultra-sociality so it points in the right direction. If, if that's where we are, if that's what our wiring really is, go work with that material. Yeah, and, and I think your, your book would argue that those, those norms that we are that the leader should drive to would be uh, what, what you've coined the geek way. And uh, it's awesome, man. I, I, I really, you know, like I said, I got the book and I was like, ah, I don't know. And then I opened it and I said, I'll be damned. I'm really enjoying this thing. And I <laughs> flew through it. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad, um, I, I'm happy for you to be able to write a book like this because, uh, you know, before this started, you said I could tell it's a labor of love. And just talking to you about it, I can tell how much passion you have for this. And, you know, it's, I think it's the type of book that you need to live some life to see and you really have to, you know, you got to think about how humans work. And I, I think it's a, it's a really insightful piece. Thank you. It, it was hard fun, which is a phrase I include in the book. It used to be that one of the mantras of the MIT media lab, parts of it were, were a struggle to really think, uh, to try to get right on the page. But like you said, I, I found myself super passionate about it for a couple of reasons. One is I, I really, I, I, I'm a management academic, I think for a reason. I want organizations to work better. We spend so much of our waking lives at our jobs. They're important to us. Why do so many of us have to work in these disheartening, kind of toxic environments? We want less of that. And healthier cultures also generate more good stuff. We want more good stuff out there. The other thing that got me really excited and kept me persevering was I, I came across this body of science as this relatively young discipline called cultural evolution that looks at us and says, wait a minute, we're, we're weird. We're deeply weird on the planet. We're the only ultra social species. We're the only species that launches rocket ships. Those two are related. Let's figure out what makes us tick, what makes us different as a species. So I think the geek way is the first book of applied cultural evolution out there for a business audience. Which you know, which I think is cool, which I'm happy about. Yeah, that is that is cool. What's your day to day look like? Are you in the classroom or like what's uh what's the life of Andrew McAfee? Not, not their life. It feels really busy. I, I get paid to think, and it's just this glorious privilege that I have. So my my typical day is when I'm when I'm not talking about the the last set of ideas. I'm trying to think about the next set of ideas, and I I get 
uh, I, I get a lot of joy out of coming across a, a hard problem or a thing I don't understand very well and trying to wrestle it internally into some kind of shape and then try to write it down so that other people get to do it. Uh, or, or get to get to profit from it. So I, I'm I'm a geek. I I think I'm a, a a geek about writing business and technology books, which you know it's its own kind of weird, but I I, I like it very much. No, it's got to be super fun, man. It's it's got a little bit in common. You're a lot smarter than I am, but it's it's uh like this podcast. You know, I like to talk to people. I like to pull on ideas, and you know, I I, I think. Um, that I think it's a great way to spread knowledge. So um, thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I hope this is a reasonably enjoyable part of your media tour. I'm sure you do. You're doing a lot of these right now. What I like, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to flatter you on your own podcast. You clearly read the book and you took some things away from it. So we can talk about the passages that resonated with you. That That's a great feeling. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I, it's, um, it's a great joy and, and I, you know, it's, it's been fun to do. And, uh, I tend not to say yes to the inbounds, but for some reason I said yes to this one and maybe that's how the world works, right? You say yes to the things that you should. Let's hope so. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, promote the passages that I like on Twitter. And if I can do anything else for you, let me know. And, um, we will take you I up may on hit that. you up for some of the people that you recommended. I, I, you know, for warm intros or something, it'd be nice to get some guests, uh, in that do similar things let me know how i can help all right i appreciate it have a good one and good luck with the book launch man let's sell some copies let's do it let's let's, buy the book folks let's spread the word (laughs) all right we'll do it all right